It's that time of the day again for us. Welcome to Counter Stories, podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everybody else. My name is Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I make are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. And I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota, and senior partner at the Dendros Group. I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. Our fellow Counter Stories crew member, Haley Lee, is unable to meet uh, with us today, but we have a fabulous guest that I'm going to ask uh, her to introduce herself to us and uh, tell us a little bit about herself. Hi, everyone. I'm May Esperanza Los Loso. I'm the Community Engagement Director at Children's Defense Fund, Minnesota, and I'm a new mom. Also, um, a budding comedian. I performed with the Funny Asian Women Collective at the Ordway last year. They're doing another super show this year, but unfortunately, I'm, I'm really busy, so I won't be able to make it. But I'm excited to join everyone today. And welcome back, I should say, because you had uh, been part of our segment uh, a bit ago. And uh, so we're always happy to welcome back uh, old friends. So thank you for your continued friendship with us and support of our program. You know, before we we go further, we're going to be talking about freedom schools, but we want to make sure that people understand, our audience understands what freedom schools are. Uh, And before you do that, may also talk a little bit more about the Children's Defense Fund of uh, Minnesota and what your mission is and what you engage in, and then take us through freedom schools if you can. Sure. So Children's Defense Fund Minnesota, my role there, I'm the community engagement director, and we really look at making sure that all children in Minnesota have the best start possible in life, surrounded by, you know, a caring community, and because we know children don't come in pieces, so we really look at the whole child and the communities that they live in, not just immediate family, because we know there are lots of chosen family, different kinds of families as well, so we think about how we can affect the well-being of the entire child the well-being and the well-becoming, right? The future uh, that that they are looking ahead. And so one of the programs that we run at Children's Defense Fund is the CDF Freedom Schools. And this is an out-of-school time program. Usually it's in the summer, but we have some that run all year. And it's really focused on uh, literacy. It's, you know, research-based and multicultural curriculum that supports, you know, children and their families, a lot of activities. There's also parent family involvement and civic engagement, as well as social action. Every day, uh, of the summer or one day of the summer, we do a national day of social action. And there's always a theme around that. Last year, it was around youth justice. And it was really exciting to hear from the young people themselves, what is youth justice to them? And we also asked them, hey, you know, at your school, what, you know, schools, there's a lot of money coming down to the schools. So we actually asked the young people, what would you spend your money on uh, if you were able to control the budget of your school? And so it was a really, they have all the good ideas, right? They talked about more field trips, more counselors, um, less policing, and more support, supportive services. So we really work with young people, um, not just to improve their reading, but really to make them overall amazing citizens engaged in their communities. And they're a they're very aware. So I'm always excited to visit Freedom Schools. And it's so much energy, y'all. It is hype. <laughs> like the walls are shaking <laughs> that it's so much energy. 
I I remember, uh, gosh, it must have been eight years ago or so when now Lieutenant Peggy Flanagan was uh, the executive director. And there was a celebration in the summer that uh, I was invited to. And and you captured it just so accurately. I mean, there was just so much energy in the room. The children who they're the experts of their own education, right? They know what works and what doesn't work. And all of the contributions that were made uh, from a public policy standpoint, it was just really empowering. You know, and it's, it's all of that's tied to the history of, of Freedom Schools as well. I mean, you know, I got to go to, uh, on several times, taking students um, to, to on a civil rights research experience. And one of the places that we, we land oftentimes is Jackson, Mississippi. And, and we look at the work of the Congress on Racial um, Equality or CORE and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee who, committee who founded uh, Freedom Schools during Freedom Summer, you know, and, and this is not to say that that was the first time. One of the things I loved about even visiting the uh, the Haley Farm to train with Freedom School folks and to do underground railroad work and and things like that was learning that that. Even in a freedom school history, they don't just talk about bringing kids from all backgrounds together, in particular, sharecropper education that was received by African-Americans and poor whites. So again, this is a multiracial um, founding, and people like to scrub that out in order for these political whims. But they also made mention of the the use of schools to liberate, whether it was Native communities who were gathering together to preserve Native, native uh, culture, or um, looking at the uh, secret schools in the 18th and 19th centuries for enslaved Africans, um, labor schools during the 20th century, and of course, the citizenship schools by um, Septima Clark and others in the 1950s. So there's a long history of these secret schools trying to keep access, open access to information about all peoples, you know? And so I, I think that's important to understand in the history of freedom schools and one of the reasons why they get so hype. Whenever I go and I'm invited to go be one of the readers, storytellers, you know, I got to go and visit um, the science-based freedom school that Donaby, um, Emmanuel Donaby ran in St. Paul this, this, this past summer. And it was, I mean... I think hype. We need, might need to find right. a new it's word because, like, they got chance. They got chance. They 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 they're yelling. They they're yelling chance. They're yelling uh, these learning pieces, um, and then they're jumping two and three reading levels in one summer. You know, you know, two two or three years years worth, and and so I mean, there's just amazing things that are happening in these freedom schools. So along those lines, May, can you un- help us understand how many freedom schools there are here in Minnesota, uh, and generally speaking, where they're located and if they have a dedicated population demographics. And then also, of course, the establishment just nationally and historically, as uh, Anthony was alluding to as well. Sure. So I have the most information on Minnesota and shout out to our team at CDF. I am actually referencing some of our materials right now. So shout out Nicole and Bridget for putting together some of these impact documents. So last summer, we actually had 15 Freedom School sites and there were over 1,300 scholars uh, participating across the St. Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area. And we actually span kind of the the Twin Cities and the surrounding suburbs. It kind of each year uh, things shift a little bit depending on funding and also, you know, staffing and all those kinds of things. Um, but we had, you know, sites in North Minneapolis and the suburbs, greater St. Paul and within St. Paul as well. So the two that uh, run 
full full throughout the year are Freedom or Friendship Academy in Minneapolis and Academia Cesar Chavez in St. Paul. And so we've got programs there running throughout the year and in the summer, we've got more. Um, I'm not sure how many are coming up this summer. Um, the number kind of fluctuates, but it's it's really exciting. And across the country, there are actually um, freedom school sites, even in states where there is not a children's defense fund office. So, you know, really we are open to working with a whole host of different uh, places, not just school districts. Um, I believe in California, we even have sites that are within juvenile detention facilities. Um, so there, there's just like a wide range, like people can really imagine <laughs> a lot of various places and it, it ranges from age as well. Most people imagine it's, um, elementary age, but we've had programs in high school as well. We kind of couple it with like credit recovery programs. Um, but this is an exciting way to do credit recovery, right? In, in a very culturally specific, uh, more fun type of way. Um, so there, there's really, um, the sky's the limit. I think if you can imagine, if you can bring the program, figure out, uh, the ways to do that, it, it's really possible. We work with, uh, pretty much any site. And you mentioned some indigenous, I mean, you mentioned culturally appropriate and sensitive programs, but can you highlight some indigenous schools for us that maybe, you know, folks are unaware that they're freedom schools, but yet they play a key role in our community? Yes, we had two uh, American Indian specific freedom school sites this past summer. I believe one one was in Anoka Hennepin School District and the other one was in Robbinsdale Area Schools. And this piece has been a little bit challenging because some of the funding we used to have actually uh, did not go through. So we used to have um, sites specifically. I went to um, Minneapolis South High School and met with youth there. And then, oh, I also went to Sanford Middle School and they had uh, programming there. However, when that funding ran out, we really scrambled to figure out it was a huge blow. And this is like the, this is, you know, always the conversation, you know, how do we keep this funding going? <laughs> and what does that mean to communities when it really just targets very specific, right? The American Indian Freedom Schools. Uh, I definitely felt some kind of way <laughs> when that stuff went down. Um, and it just, it's, it's like the trauma from coming back, uh, you know, these, these years of trauma coming back to communities. So it's really tough, but it's exciting that they're coming back and we're trying to figure out ways to bring them back. And, and shout out to the, to the leaders of those initiatives for the, for the, uh, um, uh, Native Freedom School work, um, you know, Ramona Kito Stately and Anoka in, 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 um, out, well, out in the, in the Osseo School District, and of course Randy Greshik over at uh, Robbinsdale for for some of the work he introduced me to to some of their work to to to, to get their Freedom School up and running. I think it's important to also note that Freedom Schools history itself, but also you work for the Children's Defense Fund, which was founded by Marion Wright Edelman, who was an NAACP legal defense. Uh, um, she directed the Legal Defense and Educational Fund Office with the NAACP, uh, MLK's Poor People's Campaign. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking heavy hitters who've been working to kind of build um, not just freedom in, in education, but also the rights for folks to learn about themselves in the full accounts of our history. And I just, I need to underscore that because we're in a space where people are are trying to roll some of those things back that all these folks have worked for. And Freedom School is the embodiment of a lot of that work. You just opened up that door, Anthony. You know where we're going now is let's talk about it. Let's talk about the elephant in the room, right? Let's talk about 
uh, critical race theory and how that continues to show up and uh, ways that currently legislators are trying to stymie the curricula in schools, in public schools and charter schools around the state. We have uh, about five bills that I understand that have been introduced uh, just this month, in the month of February of 2022, that are <laughs> um, entitled, they're packaged as the Parents' Bill of Rights. So let's talk about uh, what that begins to contain and really what it intends to thwart in terms of what is included in, in the syllabi for our students and what uh, the real agenda is behind this misnamed uh, package of bills as a parent's bill of rights, as if somehow that is missing in our society. So tell me what's on your minds about that. Don, May, uh, let's hear it from you. All right. So <laughs> I got to jump in, 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 in here in the space just because as we talk about the history of the freedom school of freedom schools, right? I mean, it's it we're talking about um, something that started because um, schools were in particular not serving the needs of kids, particularly in this case, poor kids, um, but also, you know, kids, kids who had who could have access to all the to 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 education in deep ways and were not receiving that in, in school systems. And so they challenged school systems to be more inclusive. But there also was deep resistance to what was being taught. I mean, they were taught, teaching kids to critically think, to challenge systems as they were, to 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 explore the actual and full histories. And I think there's some very interesting, um, uh, there's some very interesting uh, historical connections between the language in this bill, right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm generally, as a parent, I'm like, yeah, give me rights as a parent. A bill of rights sounds really good. But all the things that are listed in here are things, one, that I already have access to as a parent, and two, it's coming from the from the point of resisting and opening up of children's minds to full and, and real histories that we've been fighting for for so long, because now folks are going to be in fear of being sued for even mentioning civil rights. I mean, we've already got book bans that are happening and bans on teaching, you know, it, history that represents me. And we've been fighting for this for, for, for years. So I, I, there's a big dubious question mark in here when I see what's actually in this bill, even though it's titled something that seems appealing to me as a parent. And I'm trying to remember all the I, I was in and out of the conversation earlier, so I would, didn't quite remember all the pieces that were in there. Um, but I just think that we should be speaking the truth. <laughs> and children are really the biggest, um, I don't know if I can say it on the podcast, but they can, they can detect when you're lying to them, I think. They're the strongest lie detectors. So if we're trying to put into laws, you know, ways of covering up or, you know, reframing quote-unquote history uh children it affects them how they learn they know when they're being lied to and that in turn affects other things you know their well-being how they're how they're interacting with others in the classroom you know and I'm trying to as a parent as well you know I I definitely teach a certain kind of truth to my child. <laughs> I mean, my child is only uh, 20 months old, but, you know, we, we're already talking about Ella Baker. You know, we we're looking at all kinds of books, a lot of pictures, but I'm trying to teach even a different kind of history than what mainstream, right? MLK Day just passed. Um, they're, you know, you've got the heavy hitters, but I'm trying to fill in the gaps. You know, who are the people that are not 
as talked about during Black History Month, during, you know, these big holidays. So for me as a parent, I'm worried about what truths, whose truth gets taught <laughs> uh, in That's schools. That's right. You know, let's, um, maybe it, it's, a, it's a good idea right now to kind of go through some of these bills so that our audience really understands um, what what's involved, right? So it's part of a nationwide GOP push for curricula transparency. So this is a national movement. The package thus far consists of five bills, uh, which would require schools to have a system for notifying parents of activities at school and prevent schools from withholding information about their child's well-being or education, require access to class syllabi for parents within the first two weeks of the start of classes, and provide all instruction materials without cost to parents who request them for review, which that's, um, we need to impact that one. A proposal to prevent school boards from requiring that parents disclose their home address before speaking at a meeting and another that would fund an education savings account that would help pay for private tutoring or alternative schooling uh, are also in the package. Um, so what comes up for you is, as we begin to talk about that package of bills, and as Anthony has indicated, you know, the ability to then sue the school uh, district if um, they run afoul of this. And, and clearly, uh, you know, it's not as if schools are hiding anything, right? It's not as if when as a parent and I, my, my kids are now grown adults, but whenever I needed to ask something about my children's class schedule or whatever, it was fully transparent. So I think there, there's quite a bit here that is trying to circumvent things that really don't exist. And you know, one of the things that comes up often again is is the motivation, because you know the things that are that you've outlined. Many of those, you know, I'm trying to think through in my own parental rolodex what I already have access to, and I already have access to all of these different things. And so, what's really, really at at root here, um, in regards, you know, there's there's some there's some pieces as people have talked about about this coming out that parents should be empowered to be fully engaged in their kids' lives. Well, uh, is the assumption that we're not? Is it certain parents? Is it certain con, uh, you know context? And and we've talked about it before. I think Don, you brought it up. What happened in in North Dakota? You know where there's a banning of certain subjects in particular, those that are that that cover issues of race, implicit bias, or anything like that. Um, that we know are real and our data outcomes tell us about it. So if we can't talk about those, and I think about the things that we're going to get thrown out if I can't if I can't express or talk about those things, it 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 to me it it lays out all the things in which folks in my family, my communities have fought so hard to get included in the curriculum. One of my questions, Don, is what happens if this goes in to the requirement that two districts now have because of the work of, of not only of the lieutenant governor, but folks in our indigenous communities that required now as part of Minnesota studies, as part of humanities, a covering of native experiences. That's in our curricular statutes and guidelines now. What happens to that? Because in order to talk about that, you have to talk about all these things that, that folks are now uncomfortable with. So there, those are there's some big questions that are starting to rise up um, that make me wonder about the motivations out from the, from the onset. 
Well, I mean, after, you know, after listening to uh, Luz give the explanation or go over those five different parts of this uh, parents, because uh, this is, you know, I have to admit, this is kind of the first time that I'm hearing about this parent bill of rights. And I'm much like you, Anthony. You know, this sounds like a great thing. Um, I don't have any children left in the public school systems. You know, I have one in college and the other one graduated from college. So immediately when I hear when I hear the different parts, components of this bill, the hair on the back of my neck begin to stand up because what have we been experiencing the past couple of years? We've been experiencing other legislatures in various states throughout the, the country, including North Dakota, that have been leading this charge to outlaw any type of curriculum that that uh, harms or makes a young white child feel bad about themselves. I mean, that, you know, you actually hear language like that embedded in some of these other bills that are passing. So, it you know, it's this attempt to do away with uh, what they clump everything under this term critical race theory, they just kind of tend to clump everything underneath that. So, you know, essentially they are restricting what can be taught in terms of the true history of our, of the United States. I mean, the very things that we talk about here on counter stories, you know, we often cover what actually, you know, what, what the part of history that's not taught in our public schools now you know the history that we weren't taught when we went through public schools and other than you know the the, the other than the mention of slavery and or the occasional reference to native americans as these noble savages um that you know we lost our land and then we just kind of disappear poof right you know there's we just kind of disappear in this time frame. And so so when I hear now the language of this parents' rights bill, the, the hair on the back of my neck begins to stand up because it's it's a, another attempt to allow a certain portion of our population who's already being very boisterous and forceful and and demanding that that you know you can't teach my child uh true history in this country uh that concerns what we did to blacks and natives and latinos and anyone who was not white in their experience in this country you can't teach that because that will make my child feel bad about themselves so it sounds like this whole bill is wrapped around that how you know i scramble i scrambled to to put curriculum together every year to give to my students now if a bill like this passed now i'm you know i'm going to be required to to provide my curriculum to any parent who asks about it and then if they object to anything in my curriculum i have to change it in order to appear according to this bill, correct? Is is that what I'm well, hearing? And there, there's some dubious pieces to it that that go along with it because it it it, it very clearly expressly and I think very specifically does not say <laughs> that um, it is for these reasons, right? It implies it. So so 
it you know you you already have access to syllabi curricula that's already in place right that's already in place and not only that it's already a practice and so um the i think the assumption that's underlying here is that somehow um, I, I want to have the ability to object to what my kid's teaching and have them opt out of that, something that you can already do by going to a different school <laughs> or pulling your kid from that class if it's at the middle and high school levels. You can not take that class. Um, but but I think also here what is being being implied, um, you know, is is the assumption that somehow something's hidden. That folks are that 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 and it goes along with this kind of conspiracy uh, space of of somehow somebody's secretly teaching you your kid critical race theory. Number one, no K twelve school teaches that. It's a collegiate level framework for understanding oppression. That 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 you don't teach that, and it's not taught in K twelve, right? But because it covers things like the freedom schools do, right? Here is what happened in history. And let's process how we got there. But also it does it in a way that's inclusive of everybody. So you can see, you know, if we talk about civil rights, if you're white, you have a story through civil rights about being for justice, being for the things that I thought we had agreed upon were good things. But now we have something different coming about. And the legal ability to be able to sue a school because <laughs> you're violating quote-unquote statute if this passes, to sue a teacher because you don't like what's happening in there or you don't feel like they got you things in, a, in what you deem a timely matter. You know, there's all these different things that are, are trying to solve an issue that, we, we, that isn't there. And so really what it feels like is we're enshrining the ability to not like what's happening in the school. And instead of dealing with it with all the normal channels we already have. Now I want, I, I want to be able to deal with it, uh, you know, by pressing the implode button uh, just because I'm made uncomfortable or I don't like full histories being taught that this is problematic for me in the language of this bill. May, what does it sound like for you? Yeah. A couple of things are coming up for me. One is, you know, it's looking at the motivation and where even these sentiments are coming from. So in my role of community engagement, I go directly to the community. You know, who is in the school, who is learning this? And that's where I ask questions. And so, I mean, I'm always asking, where does this come from? Are our children involved in, in crafting these bills? Are parents directly involved? Which parents are involved? You know, not every parent can attend meetings. Um, it's really hard sometimes. You got folks working different shifts. It's hard to get uh, feedback from everybody or a very diverse set of, of parents. So that those would be the kind of questions I would ask is like, is it, where is this coming from really? And is it involving the community? you know, in, in as full of a sense as it can, because that's, to me, that's what I hear at freedom schools. You know, that's what I see and feel at freedom schools. It's really the entire community. You've got parents, grandparents, all of the servant leaders, the youth. It's, it's really feels like that wraparound kind of, of environment. And they're very vocal, right? Children are very vocal. Um, and parents are also very vocal. So I think that, it's always important to make sure it's actually inclusive of everybody who's learning. And the second thing I've been thinking of is there's been a cost this whole time of learning all these kind of lies and mistruths. There's been a cost to different communities, whether it's mental health, you know, the, the different um right? Suicide rates amongst young people. There are reasons, you know, there's been a cost to communities of color and American Indian communities. 
And now we're now we're worried about I mean, not that we shouldn't be worried about, but because someone's uncomfortable. I'm like, I've been uncomfortable for a long time (laughs) when I was a student. Uh, I don't think there was ever any bill covering, you know, all the microaggressions and overt aggressions I felt, uh, you know, growing up (laughs) in St. Paul public schools. Um, So that's I always think like for who who's who's bearing the cost, who's bearing the brunt of of these consequences. You're listening to Counter Stories. I'm Luz Maria Frias with co-hosts Don Newbanks and Anthony Galloway and our special guest, May Esperanza Lozloso. This show is supported by Ampers and the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. So, you know, I, I want to pick up on two things uh, before we, we move on from this topic. Uh, the doublespeak, right? Underlying the language that and the summary that I read a few minutes ago, this whole thing is about, this initiative is about transparency, quote unquote. However, one of the bills talks about not requiring people to testify who are wanting to testify or speak at a school board meeting to not disclose their address. How is that transparent? You know, I mean, it's just the complete opposite of it. And Don, earlier you were talking about the underlying assumption that uh, teaching actual history, uh, let alone critical race theory, uh, there's an assumption that it harms white children. Let's talk about that. There currently is a letter that is being circulated, talk about harming children. Currently a letter being circulated about the St. Louis Park athletic director pulling um, his team's capacity to compete against New Prague High School because of a racial incident that just happened the week prior on February 15th of 2022, uh, where the children, the boys on his hockey uh, team and program were targeted with racial epithets. Uh, so let's talk about actual let harm. Me, let me go ahead and read that letter, loose because I, I think I think the way that the athletic director worded this, and, and full disclosure, um, I know Aston Osai, the superintendent of St. Louis Park Schools, they've been doing some amazing work. But he, he writes this letter, February 21st, 2022. He says, Brad, after much processing and, and conversation with our stakeholders and leaders, most importantly, our students, I am informing you that I have made the decision that St. Louis Park High School will not compete directly with New Prague High School as a result of the racist experience our boys' hockey program was subjected to on Tuesday, February 15th, 2022 at New Prague. My decision was also influenced by the other incidents of racism involving New Prague High School athletics in the last month involving other conference schools. This decision not to compete will last at least through 2022 spring season and is open-ended after that and will continue until the harm that was caused is repaired and we are assured that any of our stakeholders, most importantly our students, will not be victimized by racism by any New Prague stakeholder in the future. We also plan to remove the New Prague banner from our gymnasium until the harm is repaired and assurances are to our liking." This is the paragraph that really gets me. Please know that I do not take this decision lightly. As I said, when New Prague High School was applying to the Metro West Conference, I will not stand for your community and students to have teachable moments at the expense of our students. Therefore, I will not tolerate or allow our students to further experience any racism while participating in athletics against New Prague's high school. Sincerely, Andrew Ewald, Athletic Director, St. Louis Park Schools. That 
piece about I am not willing to have our students <laughs> to stand for your community and students to have teachable moments at our students' expense. That that I was like, whoa. Go ahead, you know, that, go ahead, man. <laughs> that letter, I had an opportunity to uh, read that letter yesterday, and and personally, you know, that letter was 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 um, absolutely fantastic coming from the athletic director in St. Louis Park to, um, to the athletic director and whoever down there in, in New Prague, because that, you know, that hits home. And, and I, I don't know if I've mentioned on another counter stories, but yeah, I was very athletic growing up, you know, when you're younger and your body's young, you, you tend to be a little bit more athletic than when you are when you get older. Uh, but I actually played hockey. And I played hockey at uh, Minneapolis North in 1969-70, my sophomore year. And at the time, I was the only hockey player in Minneapolis public schools that was of color. I was, you know, I'm biracial. I'm, I'm a black indigenous individual. I was called so many racial epithets, not only by other players from the teams, but from the coaches of opposing teams and from the very refs that I would go to for some kind of protection against this type of uh, treatment that I received in every game that I played. The only, the only recourse I had or the, the only words of encouragement that I ever received was from my own coach, but there was nothing that was done. Nothing whatsoever. So after my, that experience of my sophomore year, I was an avid skater. But after that experience, I never skated again. I never played hockey and I never skated again. That's how traumatic that experience is. I can't believe that in, in, in 2022, we have schools and 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 fans because I'm assuming this probably if it came from players or if it came from fans. I know the other incident involved a uh, uh, Robbinsdale girls basketball team where fans in New Prague actually were making monkey noises. I mean, can you believe that? And and this is 2022. But the fact that there was this type of immediate response, I think, is reassuring to the to the um, young boys who are involved in this hockey game to have an authoritative figure from their district stand up for them. Um, and I also love that portion of the letter that he was unwilling to have his children be used as teachable moments. And the fact that he made that they made that comment prior to admitting new Prague into the West Metro League meant that there's a history there. That right? That's the point. And we've saw it. Look at prior, look what happened in Prior Lake. Look what happened in all the things that aren't public and reported, but these are happening all over the place. And again, I think it takes us right back to what May was saying earlier around, you know, what freedom schools do. You know, 
youth who have access to looking at these full histories and these behaviors and the experiences of our past and applying that to who we want to be now in this collective space, that's not divisive, although this rhetoric that backs the Parent Bill of Rights tries to make it seem so somehow talking about this is in itself is the is the cause of division. No, the presence of these behaviors and these comments and this mentality is what's divisive. And so, you know, I think it... it it would underscore to me the need to dive more into things like what, what freedom schools and and curriculum that just gives an accurate account of history do. You know, I, I have to imagine that school districts or communities that aren't having that conversation and aren't seeing that history are more likely to repeat it. And this is a perfect example. It's repeated even from Don, your experience in hockey to now, we see it repeated. If that's repeated in that short amount of time frame, imagine what we're repeating by not knowing that history. Sure. I mean, I think Anthony hit it exactly. You know, it does feel right that we are in another round of reliving history um, these past few years. And it's like, what else are we reliving? Why, why, Why haven't we learned from the past? And what is keeping us from moving forward? Because I think that our young people are full of such knowledge and such hope. And it's up to us as the adults, you know, to to work with them in, you know, hand in hand. And, you know, that that's an example of how we work with young people when we are saying no and putting our foot down. And um, how are we actually in service of of letting them become what they they can be. I mean, we are in all sorts all sorts of crises right now. I'm just thinking of like how cold it's been. I'm thinking about climate change and what I'm going to leave for for my child. Um, and there are things we can do now. And it's it just makes me so sad sometimes to to see these efforts. But I I'm I'm trying to le- lean on hope and abundance for the new year and, you know, see where that leads us and what are proactive steps we can take to, to really set things up for success because the the time has been passed. We have to take action <laughs> to move forward. Thank you for that. Uh, Don, I, I, um, I hear the pain in your comments and, and it pains me to even hear it, much less to understand that you went through it. Um, and the fact that you didn't have safe space at that point, right? Clearly it was not safe space, but yet these freedom schools provide safe space and we shouldn't lose track of that. In addition to all of the academic rigor that goes on and the artistic expression and empowerment that our youth are able to experience through freedom schools, let us not forget that it also creates safe space that is a respite for them from all of the racism uh, that they're facing within the schools, but also the athletic programs we know and community as a chart as a whole, right? The other part of this that was so powerful with that letter uh, from the athletic director in St. Louis Park is we can't lose sight of the fact that we need what I call co-conspirators in our lives, right? An ally is passive in my mind. A co-conspirator is one who actually takes action. And that athletic director by saying, "Uh uh-uh, no more. I'm not going to uh, expose our youth, our boys, or any of the, you know, program participants uh, in these um, competitions anymore, in these games against uh, New Prague. That, That to me is leadership. And it also demonstrates to other school officials around the state and heck around the nation, because my sense is this is probably going to trend nationally, 
on what they should be doing, right? And and not have the circumstances Don mentioned earlier where there's no accountability, right? And we know when there's accountability, then we actually can move towards action. It's when folks only give this performative lip service about, I'm so sorry that happened or Black Lives Matter and go back to business as usual, right? It is about challenging leaders to step forward into that uncomfortable space. And my sense is as a result of this, we're gonna have more school leaders and hopefully more athletic directors that follow that lead and get outside of their comfort zone and finally put their foot down and say, the best interest and mental health of our children is a priority. And that is something that we have to make sure that we safeguard at all costs. You know, to that point, you know, it is especially to think about the healing of children. One of the things that that comes to mind is what we hear from white students who grew up in situations where they haven't had these conversations before. They haven't been able to participate in a freedom school or with a teacher who teaches full history um, and, and allows students to, to kind of arrive and, and conceptualize and, and, and figure out how they feel about it, right? I think, you know, almost every students are wired to see injustice, to your point, May, I think it was very well well put that that students are wired to see injustice and want to do something about it. And so by restricting them from being from doing that, we're actually causing harm. White students who come through through programs, who come through freedom school, who who encounter this history later in life, oftentimes uh, you know, really, really come out and they feel upset, frustrated. I think, Don, you've spoken to this about kids coming through your comparative racial uh, uh, um, racial analysis class. Like, like being at, all of a sudden, I'm hit in, in oftentimes end of high school or college with all of this history that could have been been given to me and I have to go back and relearn all of these things and understand how this has been impacting my my friends of color this whole time if I have them and then they're coming back they're frustrated they're pissed they're looking back at whole it's reassigned whole family dynamics they they have an issue trusting anything that's giving to them and and instead you have given now them a space where instead of spending all this time learning how people in white communities have walked alongside and with as accomplices uh, folks of color to, 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 to do this work. I don't have that archetype access to me. The only archetype, if I don't ever get any of this curriculum, any, any of this understanding, the only archetype I'm giving is the folks who, once I get this history in college, are the folks who are the perpetrators of a lot of this injustice. That's the only archetype I get to reach for. And that sets up an environment where I'm, I look at myself and I think I don't, I, you know, I think badly about my ancestors because nobody's ever told me about the Nicholas Chris's who posed for the picture with, with Rosa or the, or the John Browns or the Lucretia Motts or all of these folks throughout our history that should be a part of the story, but you don't get that part of the story because you, you won't even give them, give them, <laughs> you, you won't give them the story. So, so I think, you know, it has to be understood that if you're, if you're trying to put some legislation forward that gives, that allows parents to opt out of this, you're actually giving, uh, you're actually giving, um, you know, carte blanche, you know, invitation to create harm amongst students, let alone White, you know, both white students and students of color included. Either the omission, which causes harm, or or you know, or the omission for white students that that causes harm, you know, later on when they when they realize that they've been duped. You know, Anthony, um, and May and Luz, you know, I think that we can kind of all assume 
where this is coming from, because I know I don't think any of those individuals, much like May was pointing out, came out into the community and asked us what our opinion was about this or why we needed to have this bill. Right. This 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 parents rights bill. Uh, I don't remember being engaged in any conversation or anyone coming to the native or black indigenous communities or Latino, any of any of these communities. So one would could probably safely assume that it wasn't written with us in mind. And and so but, you know, heaven forbid language like this gets through you know, and passes here. I, I, I think right now, I think there's still enough votes to kind of shoot this down. Um, and, but then what that means, we have to keep our fingers crossed for the next election that these uh, scales don't tip, correct? You know, otherwise stuff like this is going to start seeping through. And and while I think that we can safely assume we know where this this is coming from, you know, being tapped back into this anti-critical race whole thing and 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 uh you know parents angry white parents showing up at school boards and demanding that their children not be taught true history, you know, it 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 it's like there's this whole backlash that that as may said we're being assaulted and not only that but you know look you know may also mentioned when we look around we find ourselves in this time cuz you know every day we hear about what's happening between russia and ukraine right i mean and so so that's a trauma that we're just waiting to happen. Now we're hearing that uh, truckers are on their way to Washington, D.C. to reconstruct the protest that was just dismantled up in Canada. So we have that coming down the pike. Now we have legislation flying all over the place, you know, on top of the book banning, on top of all these other efforts that's currently going on in um and and our schools being led by small vocal uh, folks in our community, where the you know, and small vocal, I say that because the majority, I believe, of our community would be dead set against something like this, but we don't hear anything. And I think that that's, I think that silence is so deafening. It's like until. Until that athletic director from St. Louis Park wrote that letter, I hadn't heard any cohesive um, response from anywhere over the incident that happened down in New Prague. I think it got about five seconds on the news media, and that was it. It's like, you know, but then again, where are we? You know, we're, we're here in Minnesota. It, it's an assault. It's a daily assault as a person of color that I feel day in and day out. And it, it saddens me because I've shared more than, than one time that a very simple question I would ask my students was when they came into my critical race theory class was how many reservations are there in Minnesota? And, you know, and, I haven't had one student successfully answer that question, native or non-native, which is heartbreaking, right? The fact that we have 11 reservations in Minnesota and the average Minnesotan cannot 
answer that question. And that, to me, falls squarely on the inability of our school systems to even teach history or what is currently happening in this state. And with bills like this coming around on top of all these other efforts, I don't see how two or three years from now, we're still going to have any students, unless they attend a freedom school, be able to answer that question. And that saddens me. Don, you uh, you mentioned angry people at school board meetings. And, you know, I, I've got to hop on that uh, because there is a a trend around the country where people have become so belligerent at local school board meetings that school board members are now resigning because uh, they fear for their safety. And, and again, one of the bills in this package of the Parents' Bill of Rights protects people from having to uh, state their address on the record before they speak or testify before the school board uh, meeting here. And and when we think about just in the last month or two, there was a school board meeting up in St. Cloud where there was someone who testified and they were wearing a swastika armband. I mean, let's, let's not forget that, right? So that swastika wearing person now wants to be protected and not having to disclose that whether or not they're even in the school district. I mean, it just is, um, it defies logic. Uh, and then the other thing that I think we should not lose track of is the additional burden on our teachers. Uh, they're already overworked, right? They're already exhausted by what's going on with COVID and the additional uh, burden that they have with children who may or may not be learning at the right pace because of distance or just being exposed to different family dynamics or even struggling with COVID infections of their own. So you're going to now tax uh, an overworked population already and they're leaving by the droves. I mean, there's just one flaw after another. Um, But we're running out of, of time here. I'd like to do just a quick uh, summary or, or closing thoughts by by everyone around the the table here. Uh, May, let's start with you, and then and then we'll go from there. Sure, I think that in closing, there's lots going on all around um, harmful things, but also I think focusing in on where we can make the most difference. And for me, it's looking ahead to the summer, making sure all our sites are ready to go, um, ready to serve more scholars than ever and you know focusing there and really continuing the education of how important it is to be involved whether it is through voting just being aware of what's going on in your neighborhoods Uh, I think we have a lot of power if we have information but also when we are working together um, getting on the same page so it's all about movement building for me and it takes it can take a long time but it's doable we've seen our forefathers you know our ancestors in this country have done some amazing work through movement building and let's let's recreate those kinds of (laughs) those actions those kinds of exciting ways to make uh, critical change that's that's what i'm leaning on for the future you know i i think for me is as what comes up uh, immediately is 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 who's who's really screaming 
Because when we look at a lot of the data, a vast majority of, of, of Americans don't agree with the book bans or the banning of certain curriculums. It's actually the majority voice. It's not a majority voice that's raising a lot of these issues. It's folks um, who are made uncomfortable. Be, it's folks who are made uncomfortable because uh, because this curriculum is actually putting forward something that that either um, hasn't been addressed or talked about in, in their experiences, or that implica- implicates, um, you know, them into some kind of responsibility for the oppression that's here. And I get, I, I get that you don't like it, but that doesn't mean that we should throw out all of our our our, our uh, the inroads or the or the, or the progress that we've made. The, the the second piece that I'll just 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 offer is that this insinuation that somehow um, parents aren't already involved in their school's curriculum or don't already have access to these things, we already do. And so because of that, that tells me that a lot of these movements are not actually about the issue itself. And that is what I have a big problem with. It's the kind of two-step that folks have used all the way back to gov- to, to George Wallace's segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. It's the same tactics that were used there, and it does not represent the majority of folks who actually want a pretty progressive education. So, you know, that that is are some of the things that come up for me. So as I think about going forward, I think about supporting um, things like freedom schools, things that that pull folks together and deal with the real history because that's actually where healing comes about. And I think for me, my reaction is I'm I'm uh, it I'm I'm saddened that that a and I agree with you, Anthony, in your assessment that it's a small um, minority of individuals who are very loud, very boisterous that are being catered to um, with legislation like this, with the, this, this parent's uh, Bill of Rights. Um, I think the other thing that we, we didn't touch on was, was that this bill also, I think, on, on some language in that bill, would give parents the ability to be able to sue. And to me, I think that I agree. We t- it seems like we take, we take two steps forward and then we take two or three steps back and what we're actually, I think, experiencing is what it was like, you know, with the creation of these Jim Crow laws. And, and, and there's no other way that, in my mind, that I can, you know, define what we're actually seeing happening. And and, and the fact that it, they're rolling back um, the inability for us to talk about what really happened in this country the fact that they're rolling back slowly state by state voting rights the the fact that you know we have these things they're coming at us from so many different sides simultaneously that you know sometimes um it it it, it gets hard for us to keep track but thank god you know there are folks all over who are on top of this but it's a daily assault and and it gets tiring it really gets tiring um, to see these efforts to roll back the progress that this country was moving forward, I thought in a positive manner. So, you know, individuals like May, 
who are who work for the Children's Defense Fund that are in this battle day in day out. You know, I respect them so much, and 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 others who continue this fight. You know, we get to get together once a, once a week and kind of you know bitch and complain about this on our Counter Stories podcast. But it's our way. It's our way of contributing to this discussion and maybe bringing it to light to individuals who may not be aware that this thing is happening. You know what this parents' bill is actually about, and the and the insidiousness, and it's not easy for me to say that. In fact, I can't even say it. That, <laughs> that's my closing thought. We got you on that, John. I'm going to leave our our listeners with a quote from Winston Churchill: "Those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it." We know that history doesn't repeat itself, yet every historical moment is distinct from those in the past. So if we don't learn from our mistakes, then we certainly will run the risk of repeating them. And that is the lesson that we all must keep front and center. This has been Counter Stories. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I've shared today are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church in Duluth, Minnesota, and senior partner at Dendros Group. I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. And our special guest for today, May Esperanza Los Loso. I'm the community engagement director at the Children's Defense Fund, Minnesota. May, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, the door is open for your return at any time in the future. Thank you for all that you do on a daily basis, as well as the organization, Children's Defense Fund of Minnesota. Uh, with that, um, thank you. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.